Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to A Little Bit Dusty, all things country, rural and outback Australia. Grab a hot or cold one and enjoy the conversation ahead. Thanks very much for tuning in to another episode of A Little Bit Dusty. This was a very, very interesting conversation that I had with Michael Cummins. Uh, He's been involved with a variety of careers over his lifetime and majoring in those in mainly uh, emergency services. This is just a little bit of a trigger warning due to the content of the nature that we talk about. We do talk about things such as alcoholism, domestic violence, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, and suicide as well. So just a bit of a trigger warning. Uh, It's a very, very interesting chat, and we talk about all sorts of things, diving into the mental health train a little bit as well. So I thoroughly enjoyed it, got a lot out of it, and it was good to get that insight of what it's like to working with uh, or chatting to a man who's been involved with some really uh, adrenaline-thrilling careers over the last kind of 30 years or so. He's uh, been involved with a lot more uh, support and peer support kind of things as of recent, and yeah, we covered a lot of cool ground. So enjoy Episode 7 with Michael Cummins. G'day, guys. Welcome to another episode of A Little Bit Dusty. We are now at Episode 7, and I've been looking forward to this chat. This is going to be pretty interesting. We're chatting to Michael Cummins. He's been involved in a variety of different uh, careers over his time, especially in the emergency services, and he joins us now. Michael Cummins, how are you, mate? Yeah, no, traveling well. Yeah, going now, actually. Do you want me to call you Mick or Michael? Yeah, or no, Mick's uh, fine. Yeah, Mick's yeah, fine? Yeah, All right, yeah, cool. Yeah. Easy. Cool. So let's start with telling the listeners uh, where you're based now, what you do for work currently, and how you've been going since this whole kind of crazy pandemic's taken place. Um, okay, so I'm based uh, down near Geelong, Bowen Heads. Um, work-wise, oh, I guess for the last, uh, say, 10 or 11 years, it's been workplace health and safety um, across a, a various industries, um, just contract work, um, six, seven, eight, nine, 12-month contracts. Sometimes they roll one into another, uh, but just been doing that sort of work. Sometimes it's a one-man show, um, and other times I've been fortunate to employ some really good people on some you know, pretty interesting projects. Awesome. Oh, very nice. Now, you were born in uh, in Wagga. How would you describe yeah. that environment to listeners who haven't been to that town or anywhere uh, similar before? Wagga, Wagga. Um, yeah, I was born in mid-50s or late-50s. So um, we grew. I grew up on a dairy farm just over the Victoria-New South Wales border in the Upper Murray. Oh, um, wow, on a dairy farm. Yeah. So uh, Dad had a soldier settlers block. So okay. I lived there um, probably until I was about 16 or 17. There was no future for me on a farm. Um, so I was schooling. I went to school, but <laughs> that was about it. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just um, looked to Melbourne. I had uh, two of my brothers living down in Melbourne. So I just uh, ah, okay. packed my bongos and uh, and went down there. Ah, so I was, I was going to ask, you know, did you enjoy kind of growing up in that area? But um, it seems like when you're in your kind of mid-teens, you're looking for a bit of a change of scenery and change of environment, eh? Oh, look, I think there was no future for me there. And so uh, Dad was, um, he'd returned from World War Two, So I was a oh, wow. um, very late addition to the family. Like he was 50 when I was born. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, uh he was a drover by you know, occupation. He'd lived through that depression. So a very interesting sort of character now that I reflect back on it. Right. Um, some of the ways, some of his behaviours and things, I can see now why he did it. But at the time, it just it was just a part of life or I never really thought about it too much. But he, um, so I worked with him on driving camps and things like that. But there was certainly 
no future for that for me. So that's why, you know, I think in New South Wales, <clears throat> you could get your driver's licence at 17. And um, I was out of there as quick as I could. There you go. Wow. So as you said, your father was a drover and you spent a bit of time out of school to learn about, uh, you know, what goes on in the paddocks. For yeah. those who haven't really, you know, don't know too much about it, what is the role of a drover and what are some of the risks and rewards associated with the job? Um, well, for him, I guess he was basically the boss and I was the, uh, the offsider. It was, interesting enough, it was fairly well rewarded money-wise, but you were there 24-7. So in, in New South Wales, they had, I think it was six miles between um, stock reserves. So you'd get the mob of cattle and you'd take them from one location to the next. Um, okay. Uh, so on, you know, back roads they were mostly on, but um, dad being dad, every so often he'd have a bit of a disagreement with somebody in a car or uh, somebody would drive up a bit too quick or they'd bip the horn or <laughs> do, do all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff and he had right. a very, very quick temper. Okay. Um, so it didn't take him much, and he's a big guy, um, big strong bloke, and it didn't take him much to uh, fly off the handle. And I saw some interesting things over the years that um, I thought, geez, if he doesn't end up in jail over this, I'll go, hey, but he seemed to survive them all. So, yeah, that was a, it was an inter- it was a good experience. And what it taught me was to um, shut my mouth, open my eyes, you know, and listen. Yep. Yeah, right, fair enough. <laughs> um <laughs> See, in the message you sent us before this chat, yeah, you cited, well, as you just then, a couple of good stories between uh, some of the interactions between your dad and the public. Would you care to share a few that are uh, sparked to mind? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably one that really sticks out. He, um, we were, had a mob on the road one day and this bloke come racing up in a car and I still remember it was a little sports car, some MG type thing and, you know, he come up a bit quick and he's beeping the horn and carrying on and dad just rode up next to him um, and he, my dad must have been having a bad day. And he's just reached down off the horse, just grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and pulled him out of the car and more or less dragged him over to a, a bridge. And there was a fair old drop-off, you know, it would have hurt. And he's hanging him over the bridge saying, you know, give me a good reason why I shouldn't drop you over with a few wow. descriptive words in that and the, the girl screaming. And anyway, uh, up pulls this little um, blue mini Cooper S and that was the favoured vehicle of New South Wales Highway Patrol those days. And um, Really? Out, out steps the car, out steps out of the car of like in a blue uniform, and I thought, "Whoa, this is going to get interesting." Yeah. Anyway, um, it all calmed down pretty quick, and um, this bloke in the blue uniform said to the fellow in the MG, "You know, follow me into town." So anyway, they got in their cars and slowly drove off, and you know, I went up to Dad and I said, "You worried about that?" He said, "No." I said, "What about the coppers?" And he said, "No, no worries at all." He said, "The uh, that bloke wasn't a copper." He said, "If you looked hard, it was a RAF uniform." So there was a big raft right. base on the edge of Walker. So this guy, out of the goodness of his heart, calmed it down. Um, and, yeah, he just went away and we, and we never heard from the police again. But there was a few sort of stories like that over the years. But he, um, you know, sort of, uh, classic years later, he was on a tram in Melbourne with Mum and um, a bloke put his arm up to get off a tram, like onto a, one of the support bars. And yep. Dad thought that was getting a bit close to Mum. So he just swung his arm down and mum's a nurse she said i and she told she's the one who told me the story she said i heard this bloke's arm just crack and uh dad had given him a fair old whack but that was him it was just calmness calmness yep. to absolute um zero to 100 eh? violence in the heart of a you know in a split second and all the kids mm. i mean we all knew how to to sort of deal with it but um yep. you know now that i look back on it i mean he um, picked up a you know classic dose of PTSD as a result of serving overseas in you know in the army in World yeah, War II. Yeah, that's II understandable. And, and no one you know the funny thing was no one really knew about what it was um, certainly in those times. But Dad always had a, um, a fondness for the and we had lots of them on the road those days. Swaggies, you know that then they were basically blokes out of World War One that just um, you know had nowhere to live. They couldn't live at home or they'd been kicked out of home or they drank too much and. And it was yep. just basically that. I mean, they were just on the road, um, you know, living that sort of life. But wow. Dad, he always had that soft spot for him. And I think in his own mind, he could see, <clears throat> excuse me, he could see him to a certain degree with them. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it was pretty understandable that um, given, yeah, what he's been through, he's, that resembles his, in, his, in his characteristic. But, yeah, it sounds like it's a very... Thick-skinned, hard man that he didn't want to muck around with. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's pretty tough. Uh, yeah, but he, um, yeah, he's, he's sort of in a funny way. I mean, sometimes I used to think he was sort of like the 
oldest hippie in the world. He, he didn't care much about possessions and um, he more or less lived, you know, fortnight to fortnight. And then I think one day he had to, um, he worked out that he could apply for the pension. And oh, yeah. um, when they said to him, well, you know, produce your tax file number. And he, that was a pretty interesting conversation because I don't think he'd ever done one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but he got through it all. And, you know, I think the RSL had a few advocates those days. Anyway, they got him onto this gold card thing, which gave him, you know, free hospitals and doctors and things. And, um, yeah, but he, he was born in 1906 and he died. Wow. Um, in, well, when he was basically 91. And, um, but, you know, a really interesting life. Like there wasn't much that he hadn't done. And I was the youngest of three boys. My two older brothers sort of, they saw more than I did. But, yeah, pretty fascinating journey. Wow. That's, um, yeah, that's quite something. Yeah. So that was so, just after you kind of mid-teens, around like 18, 19, you ventured on to become a police officer in Victoria. What, um, what made you choose to become a cop in the first place and especially kind of around rural Victoria? Um, so look, I was, I'd left Melbourne, I'd, I'd, sorry, I'd left home, gone to Melbourne and the jobs down there, um, there's a couple of footy clubs I played with. They got me jobs working in factories and stuff and boy from the bush, I didn't like it much. So I was home at one stage, um, <clears throat> and I went down to the local police station and just grabbed the application form and threw it in. I mean, I knew the local police from there. My eldest brother was, um, uh, in the police force then. Okay. And uh, so I just put the application in, didn't think much more about it. I think I also got one from New South Wales and put it in because they recruited for, um, you know, Braun uh, back in those days, more than brains as they yep, do right, now. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so I put them both in and the Victoria one come back um, first. So I went and did the interview. Oh, cool. Um, and that was fine. So about two weeks after my 19th birthday, I went to the police academy and in um, the middle of 1977, I graduated. So I was... Um, 19 um, when I graduated um, and you know really that, I just thought I'll do this for a couple of years and move on and then um, I, you know, I was there for 30 years basically and um, wow, look I, years. you know I loved it you know it was a great job it's a fantastic job I'd recommend it to anyone but yep. it's like all those jobs um, you pay a price and at the time if you'd have said to me you know certain things are going to happen in your life I mean I wouldn't have listened to you because all I, you know, all I could see was having a good time, and you know, when I graduated, I'm I'm out working, you know, fun times. So the uniform, and all the girls loved uniforms. It was just a great time. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was um, but it was great. You know, I I, I enjoyed it. I, I did have a love for the bush though. So as soon as I could, I did a few years in the city, and then transferred to the country. And then at that time, um, I met my wife. Um, okay. while I was still in the city and I spent a couple of years in the rural rural area. Then I went back to Melbourne and worked um, for about three years out in the western suburbs and then I thought if I want to keep my marriage going, it's really it's time for me to um, move back up to the country again and, um, and that's what we did. And then through a succession of, um, you know, two kids were born um, and I sort of worked around the northeast of Victoria, up around Alexandra and Mansfield. And, oh, yeah. And those places and um you know i really you know i enjoyed it but you're working by yourself all the time um so it was pretty risky work um if you went to any sort of critical incidents you know there's a good chance you were going to be there by yourself or you'd be the first one there and you might be the first one there dealing with a the whole thing as it unfolded you know by yourself um and those days um we didn't have access to that mental health support i mean if you wanted to um, talk about something, it just wasn't the done thing. Um, yep. If you wanted to unwind, unwind after a job um, and you're a drinker, well, you go down to the pub and you have 20 beers. Mm. You know, and if mm. it was a really nasty job, you had 30 beers. That's, you know, do that once in a blue moon, you'll get away with it. Do that on a continual basis and you will struggle. And yeah, um, that's what I saw a lot of my, you know, good good mates and workmates and um, I saw a lot of them, you know, fall by the wayside simply because their coping mechanisms um, weren't as good as they should be and certainly from an organisational point of view, they weren't supported as well as they could be. It was a like all mental health and, you know, you fast forward even to the work I do now, I mean, it's much, much, much better than, you know, what it was, but yeah, mental health was changed. a taboo subject. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, being a policeman's uh, not an easy job, and I've read a few uh, police and detectives uh, biographies and books, and yep. they all say, yeah, a similar thing, Mika. That um, yeah, if it was a bad, if it was a bad job, they'd all, yeah, hit the booze, and that was kind of one way just to cope with it. But yeah, and that has yep. a pretty dire consequence down the track. And uh, as you stated earlier, uh, do, seeing some things that you've seen, uh, you know, probably by yourself out in the rural areas could probably uh, pay a, a massive uh, price for yeah, your mental health as well. So. Yeah, look, it's not an easy job, and yeah, I commend anyone who wants to give it a go. And you know, it depends on whatever. You know, some people have different opinions about the police, but in the, the day, it is a job to do when you're there to serve the yeah. public, and that's the main group that people call if something's uh, if they're in danger or if something's wrong. So, yeah, for thirty years in the service, um, yeah, I commend you on that. That's a yeah, it's a pretty tough gig. Yeah, yeah. I left when I was um, forty nine. I I picked up a job um, working overseas um, in Iraq, teaching Iraqi police how to be policeman. Wow. Um, so I did that uh, for about seven, eight, nine months and then it was getting a bit dangerous. We were working well and truly outside of um, Baghdad, about 160Ks out. So the road trips weren't much fun. Is that when there was quite so a bit come, of heat going on? Oh, yeah, yeah. The convoys were getting hit and the uh, base that we're on were um, a few times the mortars and the rockets come over the fence. Um, wow. So it was, you know, I'm probably, you know, at the wrong end of my career to be doing things like that. <laughs> um, I enjoyed the work. I worked with some fantastic people, you know, um, people that unfortunately, you know, two of our training team were killed. But it was, um, you know, I loved the work, but I could see that, you know, there's no real long-term future for me. And it's putting a fair bit of stress on my wife and on my family. So I come home and then I decided to um, cross over into the construction industry. Okay. Um yeah. I just want to go back to your rural uh, police kind of uh, time there. Yep. Are the type of crimes vastly different in country areas compared to, compared to a city cop? Um, ah, yeah, there's a lot, there was um, a lot of the domestic violence was more hidden in the bush. You know, it was there. I mean, as a percentage, it's always there. Um, it was more hidden. Um, pub brawls and things were, you know, those sorts of things were there. So you generally went to them one off. I went up, I worked up at Can River in East Gippsland, you know, and that was a pretty tough sort of timber town and um, good people. But, um, you know, if you went to some incidents up there, you know, you knew that if you said to someone, listen, either quieten down or else, you had to be able to produce your else. <laughs> Otherwise, it, was, it wasn't going to be much fun for right, you. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. Look, yeah, certainly, you know, you, you didn't have a lot of your armed robberies and things that you have in the city. You didn't have... Um, uh, you still had a lot of, you know, you had your murders, you had um, a lot of suicides in the bush. Um, I probably attended, you know, percentage-wise a lot more in the country than I ever did in the city. Um, so that was uh, mental health once again. Um, you know, it was unmanly or unwomanly, whatever the correct terminology was, to go and seek help. Um, so you let, you know, these people let the whole thing build up in them. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of suicides. and. And you know, across a broad range. I mean, I think the youngest was about 15, and the oldest was, you know, probably up in their 80s. Um, so statistically, you know, it ticked all the boxes. But yeah. for me, they're doing them, doing the paperwork, submitting the reports to the coroner. Um, you know, it was your, you know, you you go to the incident, you'd leave the incident, you'd go back to the office, you'd get the statements, you know, you'd type them all up, so you'd relive it again, you'd relive it again as you put it all together. Um, you put it in mm. to the, you know, through the checking services. It might come back to add, you know, you need a bit more detail here, so you'd relive it again. Far out. It'd get to the coroner's court. Some sometimes they have the the inquest brief without, you know, they'd have just basically hold it in the office. They wouldn't call witnesses. Sometimes they would call witnesses. So you, you know, you that one incident, you might relive, you know, ten times. Damn. Um, and then after a while, that comes, you know, fairly embedded in the brain. Yeah, it'd be quite a Exhausting process, I could imagine. Um, just want to flip it over to a bit more of a funny side now. You mentioned previous to this effort, yep. you had a couple of bush copper stories and one, uh, oh, one yeah. involving a bobcat. <laughs> Please do tell. Yeah, um, yeah, I was working a uh, place on the edge of Marysville. Uh, anyway, driving around one night and I see this uh, bobcat parked next to a, a pile of blue metal gravel that uh, belonged to the local shire. Yep. And I thought, you know... Everyone knocks off a trail load of blue metal, you know, that's just a time on it, right? But using a, 
a bobcat is probably fairly industrial. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I rang up a tow truck and I said, come up here and put this thing on the back of your truck and take it away. I said, when the bloke comes to report it's stolen, I'll, uh, I can charge him with theft and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Okay. So anyway, uh, bloke comes up, puts it on the, winches it up onto the back of his tilt tray trailer, tows it away. Anyway, about half an hour later, I'm driving around and I see this guy shoveling something up his driveway. So I just pull up in the driveway and introduced myself. I was in uniform, introduced myself. And I said, um, get some blue metal, mate. Yeah. And I said, where'd you get it from? He said, oh, you're up the road. I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I said, uh, use a bobcat to load it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, mate, you can't go knocking off loads of gravel like that. He said, oh, no, I had permission. And I thought, oh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, Anyway, a bit of bluff and bravado, and I said, look, mate, you really can't get permission to take stuff from the Shire. I mean, it's it's owned by the Shire. You know, yep. one guy can't give you permission to do this. So anyway, I explained to him what I've done, and I said, look, you play, uh, you pay for the tow truck blokes. So I rang the tow truck guy up, and I said, listen, you know, whatever you, you know, will 100 bucks make this all go away? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, you know, I was only out there for 20 minutes. So anyway, the bloke who owned the Bobcat uh, paid the 100 bucks, picked his Bobcat up, brought it home, and. You know, I went up to the local Shire Council depot the next day and I said to the bloke, listen, mate, uh, don't go giving people permission to do stuff like that. I said, you'll have nothing left on the side of the road. <laughs> he said, oh, you know, fair enough. But I got out of that one pretty easy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought I was doing some absolutely great yeah. uh, investigative work. But uh, <laughs> I left myself fairly open to uh, criticism of that one. I mean, I, I get a laugh out of it now. I still still sell that stories and still get a bit of a chuckle out of it. But, um, yeah. Yeah, the great seizure of the big bobcat. <laughs> You're currently a uh, peer worker for police veterans in Victoria. What does that role involve? Um, so about uh, 2003, while I was still in the police force, we did a, um, a peer support course while I was in the job, so to speak. So it was just um, somebody's not travelling too well. Um, you'd be put in contact with them while they'd ring you up and say, look, you know, I'm not travelling too well. What do you suggest? So you had these strategies, um, seek psychological support, you know, go and see a doctor, go and see a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, those sorts of things. So that was while I was in the job. When I left in 2007, I was still heavily involved in it. Um, and I had a few mates then. We're all starting to sort of leave the police force at that stage for a whole lot of good reasons, some resigning, yep. you know, some unwell being um, pensioned out because of you know, mental health issues. So I just keep in contact with guys and girls um, over the journey and just say, you know, just check in with them, you know, how you going, you're taking your medications, um, all that sort of stuff. And then in about 2014, um, a group of us were approached by serving police to start up a program for people that got out of the job and um, were more or less lost. So, you know, they, they didn't have a strong network of friends anymore. Yep. Um, they were mentally, they were unwell. Um, mentally, um, they needed support, but they just didn't know where to go. So we just started up this program and there was myself and a coordinator, another coordinator, and we um, corralled in about 16 other guys that we knew across the journey who'd done our course and were all outside of the poll. Um, so we rang them up and said, look, we're going to start this up. Are you interested? And every one of them come on board. So... We then put it out there, you know, if anyone wants someone to chat to. And and really that's how it all sort of started off. And I think in the first two years, it was just the two of us doing it with our peers. So yep. it was all for love. There was no money exchanged hands, you know. It was, it was just all volunteer stuff. So we did, I think it was about 800 contacts in two years. Um, wow. Some of it was just one. Yeah, yeah it was huge. It's incredible numbers. So... Some of it was just a you know one phone call, um, you know where can I do this or how can I do that, and you know you'd sort it out. Some of it was more long term. Some of it's people I still talk to, um, ring up from time to time, just you know how you going, all that sort of stuff. But quite a few of them said, um, look, you know I've, I, I I hate Vic Paul, you know blah blah blah, you know and I don't want anything to do with them, but I'll talk to you sort of thing. So. Okay. They trusted you to a point because, you know, we're sworn to secrecy. It's, you know, not yet, unless they're threatening self-harm, you know, all the stories stayed yeah, within the person who was listening yeah. to them. So we never breached confidentiality. Yeah, that was good. So when, you know, when we did all that, um, 
it progressed on. And then eventually the chief commissioner at the time, a bloke called Graham Ashton, who um, he had a big interest in mental health. And um, he, did a, um, he did a fundraiser, he and a fellow called um, Wayne Gatt from the Police Association, the Police Union, and they did a, what they called a head-to-head -head walk. So one started at um, Mallacoota um, up in East Gippsland, one started at Mildura, and they both started walking. They did a 1,000 k's each. Whoa. Um, and over a period of about three and a half weeks, and they both met at Wangaratta, and then they did some fundraising along the way and got some corporate sponsorships. So what they did is it gave us a money base to move away from what was just basically two of us running it with no structured body. So yep. we um, we didn't have a committee of management. We had people that were supporting us within VicPol, within um, mental health services, and it was great. You know, it was fantastic. But from a long-term point of view, if one of us fell over, then the whole program would yeah. struggle. So we got the um, uh, structure up. We got a, um, a management team up. Um, we had a we got charitable status, um, all those sorts of things. And it then gave me the opportunity to step back from it a bit because that wasn't my strength. My strengths were yep. talking to people. My strengths were there being in the field. Um, and that was just great. You know, I, I really enjoyed. Um, uh... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, stepping away from that role again and just supporting the people out in the field. So... I guess now we're probably up around that 2,000-odd that we've, you know, spoken to over the journey. Unreal. That's um, great. We've got a professional um, health service person that works with us now, funded by VicPol, and that's her role. She just matches peers, and we've now got about 40 or 50-odd peers. We match them to people with um, that, you know, might want support um, and Beck is just fantastic. You know, she's really good at what she does. She cares. Um, and, you know, we get some good outcomes. But, look, in saying that across the journey, we've had um, two that have, you know, that we've been supporting that have um, suicided. You know, I realise there's nothing we can do, but it's still, you know, it hurts. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Cuts a bit. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm you know, mate, you need. Yeah, no, that's no, fine. Oh, I saw when I got to this part of the interview. Um, but, yeah, look, you know, we've got to the point now where we support a lot, we're doing a lot. Um, it's more recognised within the broader emergency services community that there is a mental health issue, and that's with us, the fireys, the paramedics, you know, within the prison system, um, expanded out to the SES, um, expanded out further to even nurses and anyone working in that front line of, um, you know, dealing with, with people. I think, you know, that the whole mental health, mental health stuff is just 
Um, you know, we scratched the tip of the iceberg. We've worked out one day there's probably, you know, 10 or 12,000 police veterans out there that, you know, we've only, you know, probably dealt with a maybe, um, you know, 10%, 15%, 20%, who right. knows, you know? Yep. And across Australia, you lose, um, I think it's about 100 per annum each year, first responders who die by suicide. So, you know, whatever way you look at it, it's two a week, you know, across all services. Yeah. Um, sometimes it just seems to be a whole tsunami of, you know, it happens, you know, probably, you know, week following week following week, and then it'll be gap for a while. And then, um, but in that veteran community, there's some that are dying and, and um, you know, with this whole pandemic, you know, we found out about people that had died, you know, six months after they had died because, no one really knew. We couldn't. There was no sort of announcements of it. There was no funerals. There yeah, was, yeah. Or small family funerals and things. So, when you look at it from a you know a COVID point of view, there's a lot of um, you know, byproduct, if you want to call it that, of people that have that have died. And you know, it's um, has COVID been the blame? Maybe not, but it's certainly been an influencing factor. I think. Yeah, hundred percent. And unfortunately, that's because we hear about you know daily cases every day. It seems like. Uh, it almost distracts from other news stories or from other statistics or numbers of um, yeah people that are lost and yeah if it's if you know if, if from the numbers you're saying before if two uh, you know are dying per week say you know by the average it's the effect that it has on that community and also their family and friends and that sort of stuff takes a yeah massive massive toll so. Look, I just want to say now, I just want to commend you for, um, you know, your peer support that you've started, the numbers that have grown, and that's a massive, yeah, very important role to make sure that uh, everyone who's put themselves out in line every day is, um, you know, coming home safe. So, yeah, well done for, to you and your team for doing such a tremendous effort. That's, um, yeah, that's absolutely huge, mate. Um, yeah, look, it's been great. And look, um, once again, I take my hat off to the peers that have got out there. I mean, we all do it for free. No one gets, uh, there's no reward for it. Um, the only reward is doing the job. Yeah. So I suppose if that, in the big team of, you know, in the big scheme of things and, you know, working in that whole team's environment, um, you know, it's been great. It's been great what they've done and it's been great what they're going to do in the future. You know, we're here forever sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, if I give it away in the next few years because I think it's time for me and my time's been and gone um, or my time's up, um, then I'll happily step away knowing that whoever comes behind me um, is really good at what they do and, you know, has that interest in what they, uh, that interest in helping others. 100%. Oh, that's, yeah, it's just unreal. Now, you've done a, a variety of work outside of the white and blue as well. Let's talk about the uh, construction industry. You've had about 20 years of experience in investigation, reporting, site work, consultancy, uh, audits and management. What kind of led you into the on-site kind of safety part of the field? Um, look, I, I think... I probably, you know, like I had um, crane tickets and, you know, dogging rigging tickets and oh, excavators yep. and loaders and things. But um, the reality was I was okay at it, but it wasn't great, you know. And I, um, so I looked at it and I thought, well, what's my strength in amongst this entire industry? And I like the industry. You know, there's some, you meet some really good people, you know, from, you know, like the guys down, you know, digging the trenches to the, to the engineers, you know, and everything in between. So I looked at, you know, what is my strength? And I thought, well, making a workplace safe is probably my strength. So I looked at, um, um, I did a, an OHS course. Uh, 2009, I went to New Zealand after the first earthquake. Um, so I did some health and safety stuff over there, as well as um, assessments of houses. So they team you up with a builder and you go around and look at houses that have been hit by the earthquake. And then I was on and off there until... Second earthquake hit, and I was about a k and a half from CBD at Christchurch when, wow. that, uh, when that happened. So, you know, very lucky to survive that. And then, um, like, we come home for a week after that, and then went back. And um, so I stayed there for probably another two or three months. And then um, that work was actually starting to get to me. And um, and I think it was because after that first earthquake, it was property damage. You know, no one was injured, but oh. after that. Second earthquake, there was 100, um, take a bit of a stab here, 140, 50 odd people that were killed and then a lot, you know, seriously, seriously injured. And it just changed the whole atmosphere of what we were doing. And um, I was starting to bring it home. 
So I knew that if I was starting to bring it home, it was time to get out of that, go and do something else. Yeah. So I come back and um, I'd had my work, um, some qualifications. So I think I applied for a job as a safety manager at a quarry. Then I got a job on a mine site okay. up in um, Mineral Sands Mine Site. And then that progressed on to some work in um, construction in the dairy industry. So some fantastic um, companies like Fonterra. Um, I subcontracted to uh, um, some New Zealand companies who were putting in new equipment. So that was, you know, a really good learning experience. And once again, you were just working with some really good people, you know, welders and electricians and, and blokes doing the form work and, you know, the crane drivers putting up the panels and stuff like that, you know, painters and things like that. And, and they knew that I, I guess I was fair dickin' because I was up front with them, you know. Yeah, construction industry sometimes gets some fairly rough and ready sorts of individuals in yeah, it. And I was up front with them. I said, look, um, this is what I do. Um, you know, if you don't like me for what I've done in the past, nothing I can do about it. I'm here to stay. Um, and, you know, um, I've got an interest in mental health. And, you know, if you want to chat about anything or, you know, if you've had trouble with the coppers in the past or, you know, you've, you've got, a, got charges pending or something and, you know, you want to have a listen to someone, you know, I'm more than happy to chat about you and the conversations will go no further. And that was, um, yeah, so I had some interesting conversations over the journey. Yeah, I but, bet. But it would have broken um, the ice a bit, I could imagine. Well, it, it did. It broke the ice a bit. And um, I think one of them said to me one day, oh, you know, you might be a mongrel, but you're our mongrel sort of thing. <laughs> it, uh, so it was, was quite good. Um, with the uh, – one of the projects I was on, it was a Fonterra project, which – you know, really stood out amongst the others was that they paid for and bought in um, a mental health specialist who visited the site every two weeks. Okay. Um, they paid for and bought in um, a nurse. And then on the toolbox meetings, um, every week we'd have a topic and we'd bring in, um, say every second weekend, we'd bring in a specialist speaker. So one weekend we had a, a, a one, sorry, one week there we had a guy on prostate cancer um, uh, one other week, my wife, she's a um, breast care, breast cancer nurse, so she came up and spoke to, and we, we had, you know, quite a few, I think there was 220 contractors on site. We had a, quite a few of those who were um, female. So um, my wife, Barb, she came up and spoke about um, breast cancer and and you think to yourself, well, you know, what sort of impact is, you know, how is she going to tie this into the blokes? And, um, and it was the funniest thing I've ever heard. She was sitting there and she just said, look, um, the reason you guys are so good at um, testing for lumps and bumps is that most of the time you've got your hands down in the front of your jocks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know all about it. Well, that just cracked the whole room up and she had them then. And um, you know, anyway, she spoke about that and she spoke about, you know, cancer from a health point, cancer, um, you know, being on your game and, you know, being responsive and checking for any of the warning sorts of signs. Yep. Um, and we had another guy who come in, he was... Um, uh, he was a specialist in uh, workplace suicides. He, he was had a carpentry background. He was a fellow from Castlemaine, and he came in and spoke to the guys. And I reckon tough role. Um, we had about twenty. Uh, yeah, they were, they were basically cute. And I took him around the site and I, I inducted him onto the site and I said, "Listen, don't injure yourself because I'll get into trouble." But you know wander around and have a bit of a chat to the blokes. And I said, you got my yep. permission. Um, not that I had the permission to give, but anyway, around he went and he probably spent, you know, the best part of a the day there chatting to the guys and, you know, it started some really good relationships. And at, probably at that time, that whole ice epic, um, pandemic, epidemic, call it what you want. It's still going. It's yeah. still going. It was ripping through, you know, basically the northeast of Victoria. So the specialist we had there, um, she wasn't so much talking to the guys about, you know, the addictive phases of, of what the ice was. She was talking to them about family, you know, if you've got families ripping you off, if you've got, you know, siblings or, you know, whatever, or mates, you know, that are stealing left, right and centre, well, these are some of the things that you can do. These are some of the tricks of the trade. These are the people you can suggest they can go and see. So it it really, you you, you got a same result, but you weren't, you know, in their face saying, you know, if you take drugs, you'll die and all that sort of stuff. It was really, yeah, she got the message across. Different. Yeah, in a different way. And she was just wow. absolutely fantastic. And what happened after the project basically wound up, 
she's the guys had a phone number and she made it known that um, she was based out of Albury Wodonga, I think, and she just said, I'll keep working with you. You keep ringing me. And that's exactly what happened. Awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's unreal. Yeah. So Fonterra <clears throat> did that and I take my hat off to him for um, probably supporting it as a, as a concept and then, you know, paying for it. Like nothing's for free. But, you know, looking at the workplace and saying, you know, it's not just about people signing a JSA or a set of swims for the day or, you know, doing a drug and alcohol test for the day. It's more about, you know, there's greater values in this than you coming to work and going home safe. That's a, an absolute prime one. Yeah, 100%. But the yeah. mental health part of it is supremely important too because it's important to the worker and it's more important or is equal as important to the family at home. You know, and if they're going through issues and, and that guy can come home with a few strategies or say, here's a phone number, give this person a ring, um, you know, how good is that? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Since um yeah since your variety of uh, of work that you've done over the years, I'm starting to assume you're a bit of a, a bit of an adrenaline junkie. You've been a volunteer for CFA Victoria <laughs> and had experience dealing with medical emergency and other volunteer support strategies. What's um what kind of drives you to continue helping people? Is it the community you surround yourself with and that sense of being a part of it and protecting your community? Um, I think it probably goes back to you know joining the police force when you're 18 or 19. It sort of it becomes ingrained in you too that. You know, you can't walk away, you can't run away. If you're it, you're it. So, um, and, you know, there's times, you know, during that police journey where I thought to myself, geez, if I get out of this, you know, without, if I, hey, if I get out of this alive, I'm a happy man. Um, but if I get out of this without copping an absolute flog, I'm a really happy man. Um, the CFA, I mean, I joined the CFA in the mid-80s, and this is an absolute true story. I was living out on a farm and I had no water in the water tank. So I went down to the local fire shed and I said, listen, can I borrow your fire truck? <laughs> I need to fill up my water tank. And they said, yeah, if you join up. And those days it was much different now. You just signed a bit of paper and there's, the training was, you know, this is your truck. You've got a truck licence. Um, away you go. Now they're all petrol okay. tankers and, um, you know, it's much, much less structured than what it is now. And that's how I joined. And then over the journey it became more formalised and there was more training and there was strike teams and... Um, because if I was working in a country environment, my first duty was to the police. So generally, if there was a fire, I was out there as a copper anyway. I wasn't out there as a fireman. So as I trans, as I was getting out of the police force, I went on a few CFA strike teams and, um, you know, learned the skills of the, the trade then and, and working in that team environment. Um, and likewise, working for it was Rural Ambulance Victoria. Those days, I was um, living up at um, Malden near Bendigo and they had started off this um, service called the Community Emergency Response Team. So they look for people in the community who are prepared to do 50 hours of, it was just high tech first aid training. Um, they give you a vehicle and a pager, the team of two. So what had happened is the pager would go off and you would go to any triple O call and the idea was you would get there before the ambulance, which you generally would, um, and you'd do your best, you'd stabilise the patient the best you could. You had um, defibrillators, um, if it was a heart attack or things like that, so you, or a car accident, um, you'd go out to those. So you'd sit there, uh, if you were generally, you were there first, take control of the scene, work in with your um, cert team partner that you were with, and then wait for the paramedics to turn up. And, and I must admit, mate, I used to always love it when those blue and reds come up over the hill and I knew that I can imagine they <laughs> were coming and um, I loved it every time they pulled up. There was no, um, you know, I'd do the handovers and go, you know, thank goodness for that. And we're lucky here in Victoria, you know, and probably where I've worked around Australia and, and compared to some place I've been overseas, you know, we've got some, in Australia, we've got fantastic emergency response people. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know if I was an adrenaline junkie. I think it was more just service to the community um, and it was in a in an environment that I understood and it was in an environment that I wanted to be in and it was an environment that um, you know you, you get a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of yeah wow that's um yeah a very powerful trait to have and I really commend you for that we're kind of nearing the end of the episode and I kind of ask this question to, yep. to each guest what kind of advice would you give to any anyone wanting to hit the gravel for the first time? Anything to look out for, for any tips and tricks for a first time kind of outback adventure? 
Um, yeah, do a bit of your homework. Um, like anything, um, just plan it. Um, prior preparation prevents, I'll take out that other word starts with P, um, poor performance. <laughs> and um, yeah. basically just think, plan, do, review, you know, and that's what it's all about. And really, I mean, that's, that's your, your life journey. If you think about it, you plan it, um, you do it, you review it, you think, well, I won't make those mistakes again. You know, that's what it's all about. And, and I've applied that to everything that I've tried to do. And look, sometimes I've made mistakes. Don't you worry about that. I'm not um, Mr. Perfect. But um, generally, you know, um, if I don't get it right, my wife, Barb, bless her socks, sometimes tells me that's not as good as it should be. And um, we, uh, we plan and do things differently. Unreal. Is there uh, any other websites or information you can provide for the listeners who further want to dive into your uh, your story and your career paths a little bit further? Um, look, you know, if you've got an interest in emergency services, say, um, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, in the, you know, if you're working in a, a country environment, have a look at, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that uh, New South Wales, I mean, I've, I've, I know the states all have them. You can be, you know, volunteer paramedics, um, or not paramedics, volunteer ambulance officers, I think they call them, um, and it can give you a start. I mean, it might lead you into a career of being a paramedic. You can be a volunteer within the, the country fire authorities or services in South Australia or CFS in, in New South Wales. Um, yeah, they offer some fantastic training, great teamwork training. Um, you, you work and do jobs with some great people. Um, I think Google is your friend, you know. If you've got an interest in a particular, say, mental health aspect, um, and it's a bit like the trademark shirt, you know, um, uh, this is a conversation starter, and if somebody has that conversation with you, then I think you're duty-bound to have a bit of an idea about what's going on in your local community. You're duty-bound to have an idea of, okay, um, uh, if someone asks me that bit of a hairy question, then I've got to be able to say, well, you know, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, um, a local GP provider, or if you're aware of a good local psychologist. And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's just that a bit of advice, you know, that might say, well, mate, you know, maybe you're drinking too much. Um, or it might be something just to distract them because that yep. the worst thing that can happen to a lot of people is that voice between their ears telling them that they're no good, that they're not up to speed, that they're not this. If you can change that inner voice to the you wake up every morning and you go, you know what? I am a good person. You know what? Today I'm going to have a really good day. And your day unfolds and it might be as good as you'd hoped, but you do it and you repeat it. And after yeah. a, a very short period of time, it just changes your whole mindset. It changes your relationships. It changes relationships with your family. Um, but there's a lot of books and, and things like that out there that, um, you know, go into the library systems and, just have a look at those and, you know, be in charge of your own destiny, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, don't let it be defined by someone else and certainly don't let it be defined by that voice in your shoulder that's um, telling you things that aren't right. 100%. And for the listeners, um, we're having this conversation over Zoom, but the shirts we're talking about, Trademutt, T-R-A-D-E-M-U-T-T. They're on all social medias and they've got a website as well. Uh, they're really just kind of loud, kind of crazy designs. Uh, but on the back of each shirt, it does say this is a conversation starter to raise awareness for men's mental health and try and reduce the impact of uh, suicide in the construction industry. So they've got, they've got a great cause. I've got about six or seven of those shirts now, I'm pretty sure. I'm not too sure how much you have. Yeah, uh, yeah about yeah, about six. There's a couple of them starting to fade. So um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to have to between Barb and I. We've got to upgrade them. She's got the the hats and the scrunchy things that go around your neck and all that oh, sort yep, of stuff. Yep. So, um, we have <laughs> yeah, great quality as well. Oh, my dear. I've, mm. I've got them for my work shirts. Um, um, I put my work motive on them, um, put my name on them, and um, oh, yep. they just get a fantastic response from people on the work site. Um, last, uh, where are we, this year, last year, um, I was working on a site where there's a lot of backpackers from overseas. Um and they love the shirts and they always, you know, they're a long way from home during a pandemic and um, they were always up for a chat because, you know, they knew that, um, I, I guess they, they knew that I was fair dick and they knew that I'd listen to them. Um, and that's what it's all about is just having that 
that voice and, you know, with that whole trademark, you know, from supervisors and um, things like that, you know, if you have that conversation within the workplace, you just don't know where it's going to go and you you might never know the fantastic work you do and you might never know the outcome um, because that's the nature of, of what you do. But um, have those conversations, have them positive, be positive to yourself um, and just see where it takes you. And 99% of the time they provide a positive outcome, yeah. Michael yeah. Cummins, this has been an amazing conversation we've had tonight. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Oh, mate, Tyson, it sort of, it drenched up a few things, but um, uh, yeah, no, it's been good. And it's um, it's good to know that within a community, whatever community it is, whether it's emergency services or the construction community, there is people out there that are prepared to step up and help. Yeah. Michael, thanks again, mate. Really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime, Tyson. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.